Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. Thank you for the patience during the long absence. I hope most of you got to see a bunch of the content from the Mentionables conference, including my debate with Aaron Ra. Uh, look forward to a dialogue with he and I coming up in the future on his uh YouTube channel, I guess it is. He reached out to me, so we'll check out that. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed uh, the first installment of the episode dealing with an argument for the pro-life position from Aaron Brake. Uh, he has more of that coming to me, so we'll put that out here shortly as well. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to see any of the content from the conference, please head on over to thementionables.org or find The Mentionables on YouTube or on Facebook. On this episode, I'm going to deal with one of the objections coming out of the flower patch, coming out of the uh, group known as Soteriology 101 and its acolytes, saying that Calvinism is just a new semi-Gnosticism, and whether or not that is a good argument or not. Stay tuned for that and check that out. If you appreciate this content and any of the other shows here at the Freed Thinker Podcast, why not consider becoming a sponsor? Head on over to the Freed Thinker Podcast blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or find us on Patreon. You can become a sponsor and donate there, one-time donation or become an ongoing sponsor. Either way, we would greatly appreciate it. Also, if you want to head on over to iTunes, give a review and a rating, I would appreciate that as well. Well, with that, let's dive on into the show and find out, well, as a Calvinist, am I a semi-gnostic? Let's see. Enjoy the show. What do Leighton Flowers and Richard Carrier have in common? No, this isn't a joke. Let's find out. For anyone involved in the debates between Calvinism and non-Calvinism, a rising trend that most have observed is the accusation that Calvinism can or should be considered a kind of neo or semi-Gnosticism. This largely comes from one group of anti-Calvinists known as the SBC traditionalists, also called provisionalists or provisionist, depending on who you talk to. I'm going to say provisionalist simply because that's what I've heard the most, and it's a little bit easier to say without getting tongue-tied. They're headed up by Leighton Flowers at the anti-Calvinist group Soteriology 101. This accusation was largely born out of their frustration at being called semi-Pelagian. Flowers and company have often called this a quote-unquote boogeyman term used to poison the well against their position. So Flowers, either by invention or plagiarism, I'm not sure which his motivation was, started saying that it would be like if they started calling Calvinists semi-Gnostics in order to poison the well against the Calvinists with a term that almost entirely historically negative in its orthodox theological circles. 
As far as I can tell, Flowers thankfully doesn't make the argument that Calvinists actually are semi-gnostics, although I could be wrong. I don't listen to everything he says. And he doesn't say that we are that in any meaningful sense, but is just saying that the tone of the term would be like that. At least that's what I gathered from him. Maybe he's gone full bore since I've heard him last. I don't know, but I'll give him the, the benefit of the doubt on this. However, this hasn't stopped his adoring fans from taking the argument to that place. So how does the argument work? Is it valid, and is there any precedent to it? First, let's talk about provisionalism and semi-Pelagianism. Well, before we get to that, actually, let me first show that the accusation that provisionalists are semi-Pelagian is not the same kind of claim as Calvinists being semi-Gnostic. So let's really quickly walk through the issue. First, the accusation that provisionalism just is repackaged semi-Pelagianism is either true or false. I think it's true, and people like Flowers, I assume, think it's false. But then they should argue that. We have well-defined terms for sets of doctrines throughout history. Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, Augustinianism, semi-Augustinianism, Calvinism, Gnosticism are all such terms. Whatever evaluative connotations that the terms may carry is irrelevant to whether or not a position falls either narrowly or broadly under the set of doctrines that these terms historically describe. Tantruming about it being a boogeyman doesn't do anything but shows that you do not like being associated with the term, and that's about it. But if it walks like semi-Pelagianism, and looks like semi-Pelagianism, and affirms like semi-Pelagianism, and has the dogma of semi-Pelagianism... Well, if the shoe fits to mix metaphors. Okay, which leads me to my second point. I frequently ask provisionalists to describe to me the substantive theological differences between their view and semi-Pelagianism. I know tons of others who have asked the exact same thing, and the only ever answer we get, really, is crickets. That's it. We'll be insulted and ridiculed and provisionalists will rage quit or they'll start calling us semi-gnostics, which we'll address shortly. But they never really give any substantive theological difference between them and semi-Pelagianism. Now, I usually try to disambiguate concepts as best I can, even ones that I think are false or foolish or dangerous, like I do provisionalism. I have no reason to consider provisionalism to be nearly identical, if not identical, to semi-Pelagianism, unless it is. If it's not semi-Pelagianism, then great, I'd still think it's false, it just wouldn't fall into that category or that term. That is, I, I don't really have a polemical reason or motivation to include them under that umbrella of semi-Pelagianism to make my case that their view is downright false. That lexical term, that, 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 that title, doesn't do anything for my argument. I argue doctrinally and biblically and theologically and philosophically in pretty much every way possible, it's false. Whether or not it has associations with semi-Pelagianism or not is a completely different question and not really related to whether or not if it's false or not. That is, nothing is really gained except for lexical accuracy by considering them under that umbrella. So, if they can demonstrate how they're not under that umbrella, then great, they should do so. But they need to do so by showing the doctrinal differences between their theology and semi-Pelagianism historically. And so far, to my knowledge and my interactions, that has not even remotely happened. So, what is semi-Pelagianism? Well, I'm not going to go into all of the church history and everything. You can pretty much read any historical theology on that. 
But in basic terms, following the nearly universal condemnation of Pelagianism in the 4th century, a small group tried to make some mediating steps from Pelagianism towards a more orthodox position. In the 5th and 6th century, the movement affirmed roughly the following positions. Number one, sin had corrupted nature and man's environment and was a pervasive influence to evil, but did not make the natural constitution of man unable to freely choose God without direct divine intervention, contra Augustinianism and later Arminianism. Number two, without God's grace, this corruptive force could not be overcome by man alone, contra Pelagianism. Number one and two, by the way, should not be confused with affirming original sin. They did not think it was possible or that man would be unable to choose God, but rather that the influence of external powers would be too powerful for us to not succumb to them. And therefore we get to number three. That number three is the innate corruptive force over man was not so great that the beginning of faith or the initium fide was beyond the powers of man's native will. Number four, the increase of faith, the augmentum fide, after conversion, is dependent on God. Number five, the justified man may of his own strength persevere to the end. Number six, the justified man may of his own uh, sake forsake his gift of salvation and be lost. Number seven, both God and the human person always participate in the salvation process. That is, salvation is synergistic, but not meritorious. Number eight, humans, all humans, before and after conversion, make libertarianly free will choices. Number nine, God aids the human will through creation, natural grace, quote-unquote supernatural grace, the gospel proclamation, and restrictions on demonic invasion or activity. Number 10, God responds in grace to the human's choice to exhibit faith in him. Now, that's a rough outline of semi-Pelagianism. Unlike Pelagianism, which easily affirmed the possibility of sinless perfectionism, the semi-Pelagian is uncomfortable with that prospect. However, they want to preserve the natural ability of man to repent and choose God by their own libertarian freedom. And so they too, like the Pelagian, must deny original sin and total depravity. And yet, they do not want sinless perfection to be in view, like it was with Pelagianism. So they say that our natural will, instead of being free from the power of sin, like the Pelagian, or dead to God because of sin, like the Augustinian, and effectively the Orthodox position, they say it is sick in sin, and while it could always choose the good, it won't because of the external powerful influence of sin, sick creation, and relations to other sinful people. But denying original sin has its logical consequences. Unlike Arminians, who really are semi-Augustinians, who affirm original sin and total depravity, and insert provenient grace as a special act of God to enable the will of man at conversion, semi-Pelagians need no such gracious assistance to enable the will. Sure, they say God needs to bring us to the water, but they still say we freely and autonomously choose to drink. So the question is, how much of the above set of doctrines does one need to affirm to be broadly under the umbrella of semi-Pelagianism? Unless Calvinism were the five point, where the five points are logically entailed by the others and only work as a full system, this is not the case for semi-Pelagianism. So it becomes far more like a, the problem of the heap. When, when is a pile of marbles a heap? How many can you take away from it before it stops being a heap? 
So how many of these does the provisionalist need to affirm to be semi-Pelagianism? Well, I think the ones that are distinctive to semi-Pelagianism are the denial of original sin, the denial of a kind of total depravity where the will is dead to God in sin and in dead uh, and in need of a special act of God, whether provenient grace on Arminianism or regeneration on Calvinism before it can act in faith. And yet that sinless perfectionism, while possible, will never happen because the external influence of sin in our environment and relationships is the core of semi-Pelagianism as opposed to full Pelagianism or semi and full Augustinianism. Anyone familiar with provisionalism will know that the official statement affirms each of these. In fact, they affirm nearly every single one of these 10 doctrinal statements I listed above, with the exception that someone once justified can lose or give up their salvation. Although, while officially it denies that you can give up your salvation, most that I've met still say you can freely give it up. But that's an aside. And even that, if I were being honest, while the official provisional statement denies it, like I said, I really haven't met a provisionalist who doesn't think that a believer can give up their salvation. Maybe flowers, but for the most part, they're fine with it. Now, if the provisionalist can show some substantive doctrinal differences between the official provisionalist doctrinal system and historic semi-Pelagianism, I'll be more than happy to stop including them under that title. But as of right now, I'm honestly at a loss for how they are not doctrinally included in that group of semi-Pelagianism. They may not like the label, but great. Then argue that semi-Pelagianism shouldn't be considered a heresy anymore. But simply saying that you aren't semi-Pelagianism just because you don't like the evaluative connotation of the term, sorry, that just doesn't hold water. That's not how language works. Now, the typical response I get to this then by the... Um, you know, the, the typical follower of Leighton Flowers and Soteriology 101, the typical provisionalist, is to say something like, well, you Calvinists are semi-Gnostics then. Okay, so let's turn and explore if this two-quake argument is a good and reasonable response. So let's start by first and briefly stating what Gnosticism was around the time of the early church. Gnosticism was a system of pagan religious beliefs concerning the cosmos being ruled by a lesser deity called the Demiurge, and that matter, qua matter, that is matter in and of itself, was evil, not because of the fall, just because of what matter was, and, to, and it was to be escaped, while the spirit was true reality and good. There was a hard dualism between matter and spirit, such that all matter was bad and needed to be done away with, and all spirit was good. Now, because of this hard dualism, the Gnostics believe that the spirit, not to be confused with the person of the Holy Spirit, but rather something like the spiritual nature of reality, but maybe not so pantheistic, was accessed via secret cultic rituals only by an elite class of worthy and often rich acolytes. And this then gained them secret and elevated knowledge or gnosis by which they could be progressively set free from the material world. Think Scientology. On this system, the great and supreme God is entirely unknowable and birds the powers that rule the cosmos, called the Aeons, as well as the creator God who also birthed the Demiurge, the one who actually rules over creation. So you have the great God birthing the creator God who birthed the Demiurge who rules over creation and the Aeons. Gnosticism has no concept of sin, only ignorance, and to achieve salvation, you need to have secret knowledge mentioned above that you gain by paying for cultic experiences. 
when this Gnosticism started to infect the church, it somewhat moved away from its pagan mystery cults and took on a quote-unquote Christian flavor, although nothing about it was genuinely Christian. So, because of their hard dualism with regard to matter and spirit, they believe that the Demiurge, who birthed the son Jesus, sent Jesus to only appear to be human. He wasn't actually human, he just looked like it. So, since matter is innately evil, they denied the bodily incarnation, which means no actual crucifixion or death or resurrection. This was the error of the Docetics, who John appeared to be writing against in his first and second epistles. They also held on to the idea that salvation was not done by the shed blood of Christ, since he didn't have real blood to be shed, but was done still by gaining secret knowledge, meant only for the, the super spiritual, the elites, the ones inaugurated into the truth, and it was simply the gaining of this knowledge that saved someone. Now, even if you do not agree with Calvinism, does any of that sound like Calvinism? No course not. There's literally zero doctrinal overlap between Calvinism and any form of Gnosticism, and the implications of Gnosticism, such as the denial of the Trinity, God as creator, and the humanity of Christ, salvation and, and from sin by the death of, of Christ on the cross, by his shed blood, etc., make it utterly anathema to Calvinists. We Calvinists don't think flesh, qua flesh, is evil. We think the flesh is currently subject to the wages of sin, but we're not anti-materialists. In fact, we look forward to the resurrection of our bodies. Gnostics believe that matter, all matter, qua matter, was evil and to be escaped and ultimately done away with. So Gnosticism is not an accurate historical term for the position that Calvinists hold on pretty much anything. In fact, something like I said, like Scientology, is actually very Gnostic. But there is literally zero doctrinal overlap between Calvinism and, and Gnosticism of, of, any, of any substantive kind beyond some super vague, dishonestly worded phrases that would make all Orthodox Christianity quote-unquote semi-Gnostic, such as that our flesh is wicked and that the spirit is good, but that isn't because of our, our nature of matter and the spirit, but of the moral Im impacts of sin and righteousness. There's a dualism present in Orthodox Christianity between sin and righteousness, and it has effects on creation. But if that dualism makes Calvinism in the same dualist boat as Gnosticism, then so are the biblical authors. So that can't be what the provisionalists mean. So now that we see that the label is simply inaccurate and false as a description of Calvinism, let me now ask where does the claim from the provisionalists come from? Well, the best I can tell, it comes from two faulty considerations. Number one, Calvin, Calvinism is a kind of Augustinianism. There's a notion in scholarship that Augustine was influenced by his prior life in a Gnostic sect known as Manichaeanism. And so therefore, Calvinism was influenced by Manichaeism. Number two, Calvinism affirms that Christians are the elect of God, chosen entirely by God in eternity past, and that those who are elect are, uh, are is simply not revealed to us. So, it's rooted in the secret will of God, this knowledge that is known only to God himself, and so it's secret knowledge. But is that the secret knowledge of Gnosticism? Well, that's one of the claims. So what do we make of those two assumptions? First, the idea that Calvinism is influenced by the Gnosticism of Manichaeism because Augustine was supposedly influenced by it commits what's known as the genetic fallacy. 
How Augustine did or did not come to his belief about the teaching of the scriptures is simply not a valid argument against if his understanding of the scriptures was true or not. The genetic fallacy seeks to deny a claim by attacking the means or the conditions under which someone came to hold that the belief is true. This is simply a fallacious way to argue. Second, it also commits a guilt by association fallacy. Even if the genetic fallacy didn't exist, but it does, most Calvinists are Calvinists because we think it is the best systematic and exegetical understanding of the scripture. I know very few Calvinists who have actually read Augustine, let alone got their understanding of the Bible from him. I actually can't think of a single one, but I'm sure there's some out there. What happens is that typically we come to be convinced of the system by reading the Bible. We start finding other people who have held similar views and come to find out, oh, there's a name for this, Calvinism. And then the further we study, oh, this view long predated the Reformation in Augustinianism. And that's about it. So even if it were a good argument that Augustine only held his view because of his prior life of Manichaeism, which is clearly fallacious, it still would be a fallacious way to use that as an argument against Calvinists today. Third, was Augustine actually that influenced by Manichaeism? I'm not going to go into it here, but I think the answer is just clearly no, at least not in the sense that he affirmed beliefs because they were in line with Manichaeism. His prior life in Gnosticism clearly influenced what kind of issues he found important and how he understands, uh, understood the pagans around him. I mean, in my prior life of atheism influences how I understand skepticism, naturalism, and atheism, and what kind of issues I choose to address and how I phrase things to atheists and so forth. But it's not that I have an atheistic hangover that causes me to affirm unbiblical things. Typically, the kinds of things that people will point to in order to try to demonstrate that Augustine was still influenced by Manichaeism is his quote-unquote dualism between the flesh and the spirit, which we talked about above, the wretchedness of natural man versus the righteousness of the spirit, which again is just really the, the difference between sin and, and righteousness. But the problem is that that's just biblical concepts. It's not that the flesh is evil because it's material, but rather it's evil because it is fallen and corrupted by sin. Paul makes these exact points at numerous places in his epistles, namely Romans, culminating in Romans 7. Christians the world over who aren't Augustinian, Reformed, or Calvinistic also affirm that this just is what the Bible teaches. So this, like most of the other reasons given for this kind of argument about Augustine, make an equivocation fallacy by assuming that the dualism in Manichaeism just is the dualism in Augustinianism, and or it makes another genetic fallacy that is that this is why Augustine believes it. It couldn't possibly because, well, that's what the Bible teaches. Okay, so that was enough to show that the first assumption made to try and push this semi-Gnostic label on Calvinism is false and fallacious. What about the second one? Is Calvinism built on secret knowledge, a gnosis? No, of course not. At least not in any meaningfully significant way. Again, it would require equivocation. Remember, on any version of Gnosticism, it was the gaining of the gnosis by the human observant which brought them into the spirit to escape the material world and be saved. And it was secret to the world. It was only for the super spiritual, the super apostles, you could say. So it was a personal secret knowledge of the acolyte that saved them. On Calvinism, the only secret knowledge is God's own knowledge of his decree of election. 
on literally any view of election. This is true. Flowers' own view of corporate election would have this, unless Flowers thinks that God has revealed to him who would believe and fill the body that he chose. Does he think God has revealed to him who will and will not believe in the world that God has chosen to actualize? Of course not. So, is he semi-gnostic because of this? No, that would just be silly. On Calvinism, nothing about the gospel, preaching the word, or any part of the theology or biblical revelation is secret. It's to be preached freely to all, and just don't, and we just don't know who the elect are and who will eventually come to salvation. But that secret knowledge of God is not what saves us. That, is, that, that isn't some secret knowledge given only to the spiritual elite, whereby knowing it, they're saved. On Calvinism, the gospel of Christ is public and given to all, and we are saved by the finished work of Christ on the cross and his shed blood and given new life in his resurrection, his material bodily resurrection from the dead, which gives us the hope in a future material bodily resurrection. Absolutely nothing about this is Gnosticism in any form. It was brought to my attention first uh, when, I, when I first wrote this article for, for the blog, by the way. I'm going to give a little addendum here. That I didn't address the claim that Calvinism may be Gnostic simply because it's deterministic. That is, that it was not the claimed similarities in how one obtains or uses some kind of secret knowledge that was in view of the objection, but rather is merely the determinism that provisionalists claim Augustine had borrowed from the Manichaeans. I honestly had not forgotten about this, but think this is even more absurd a claim, so I just didn't take it seriously. I didn't think anyone really did. But since a bunch of provisionalists got all up in arms about me strawmanning them by focusing on the epistemological claim about knowledge rather than about the deterministic claim, even though I think the epistemological claim is probably the stronger of the two, even though it's utterly absurd, I probably should address it now. I was trying to give the stronger of the possible ways that the argument could be made via what could be more complex uh, epistemological considerations about beliefs. However, again, since several people asked me about the determinism claim and some provisionalists got all amped about it, let me briefly respond to that issue as well. Notice that this would still commit the three errors above, the guilt by association fallacy, the genetic fallacy, and the inability to show that Augustine actually believed it because of Manichaeism rather than from scriptural considerations. Therefore, the argument still does not even get off the ground. Remember, not only is it entirely irrelevant about why Augustine came to believe what he did about the Bible and what it teaches, which is the genetic fallacy, and unless the provisionalist is able to raise the dead and question Augustine about what led him to his belief in determinism, or be able to show some statement where he attributes his belief to his prior Gnostic worldview, despite repeatedly denouncing it and refuting it and making his claim from the scriptures, but also no Calvinist ever says that they believe it because of Augustine. We believe it because we think that it is what the scriptures teach, and when we look through history, Augustine is just one of the people that we find who robustly makes the case for the same position. But that's about it. Now, the provisionalists may say that motivations are irrelevant to their argument because, like the issue of semi-Pelagianism, it is whether we agree with doctrines of the system to be included under that umbrella or not. And so they claim that Gnostics affirm determinism and Calvinism affirms determinism, and so they are under the same umbrella in such a way that it is accurate to call Calvinism semi-Gnostic. Okay, but is that accurate? Not really, for several reasons. First, it would remove all of the talk of Augustine and the Manichaeans from consideration because 
then it would rest solely on conceptual similarities rather than historiographical ones. Fine, but that claimed historiographic link between Augustine and the Manichaeans is the main pillar of the provisionalist claim, and without it, they'll find it hard to sustain the rest of the case for their argument because they need that for the connection to be made in the first place. Second, if it is merely the conceptual similarity, that is, that it affirms some kind of predestinarian determinism, and by the way, Calvinism and Gnosticism don't even affirm the same kind of predestination or determinism, or a focus on the fallen nature of humanity and sin due to Adam, since they need to collapse the orthodox view of sin and nature due to the fall as somehow the same kind of thing as the Gnostic view of the intrinsic evil of matter qua matter, then that would mean that by the one vague similarity alone, not only would Reformed theology be semi-Gnostic, but so would Arminianism, Wesleyanism, Lutheranism, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and so on, pretty much Everyone, then, would be semi-Gnostic, except for the Pelagians and semi-Pelagians, you know, the two positions effectively anathematized for the entirety of church history. So, third, the issue is what are substantive or distinctive doctrines that the two, the two systems overlap? So, we would not say that Calvinism is Pelagian because they both affirm theism or the resurrection or the Pauline authorship of the Book of Romans, for example— we could multiply a whole host of beliefs that countless views have in common, but they're not the uniquely defining doctrines of that system. They're trivial parallels that countless views have in common. Determinism seems to be just such a doctrine. Without writing a whole new article here and making the most unnecessarily long article in the world, I am simply not convinced by the claims that the early church and uh, only and exclusively affirmed libertarian notions of freedom and denied predestination or determinism. I find when reading the arguments for this view that they very much beg the question of what is being said uh, uh, within the biblical text. The argument goes like this. One, some early church father or the Bible passage uh, says to make a choice or perform a command. Number two, I believe choice and, and meaningful commands are only possible on an incompatibilist or libertarian concept of freedom. Therefore, three, some early church fathers in the Bible passages teaches incompatibilistic libertarian freedom. Well, the problem is, premise two simply begs the question of the position that the person is trying to garner support for. As a compatibilist, I have absolutely no problem understanding choice command passages in either scripture or the early church fathers in the same way that as a compatibilist, I make choice command statements to my children, wife, friends, at work, etc. What happens then is that because the position being argued for has been assumed, whatever the text in front of us then becomes a wax nose to whatever the reader wants it to be. For the record, I find that this happens when many different positions go to the early church fathers to support their view. This is often because the early church fathers don't well-define or hash out their views, but simply parrot the biblical language verbatim. And so the readers looking to support their view about what the Bible teaches from the early church fathers finds them saying the same things that they already have interpreted in the scripture to support their position, and then come away feeling like the early church father supports their position. Now, continuing on, not only do I think that determinism can clearly be adduced from the scriptures, and so I don't need to go to the early church fathers, I think we have at least plausible counter-evidence from the early church fathers affirming a kind of Augustinian notion of determinism or predestination. We can see statements such as Clement of Rome in 69 CE, where he writes, 
When he wills as he wills, he does all things. None of those things which are decreed by him shall pass away. End quote. Or, quote, all therefore are glorified and magnified, not by themselves or by their works of righteousness actions which they have wrought, but by his will. End quote. Next one. Whereas it is the will of God that all whom he loves should partake of repentance, and so not perish with the unbelieving and the impenitent, he has established it by his almighty will. But if any of those whom God wills should partake of the grace of repentance should afterward perish, where is the almighty will, and how is the matter settled and established by such a will as his? End quote. Ignatius continues. Now, Ignatius speaks uh, of two sorts of persons signified by, quote, two pieces of money, the one belongs to God and the other to the world, which have each their own characters upon them, and every one shall go to his own place, end quote. He also writes that in predestination, quote, there was such a difference between the infidels and the elect, end quote. And, quote, they are carnal, says he, cannot do the things that are spiritual, nor they that are spiritual do the things that are carnal, as neither faith the things of unbelief, nor unbelief the things of faith, end quote. Justin Martyr writes, quote, the great things which the Father hath in his counsel appointed for all men, that are or shall be well-pleasing to him, and likewise those that depart from his will, whether angels or men, he only, that is Christ, hath most clearly taught in Matthew 8, 11, and 12, and 7, 22, 23, and in other words, when he will condemn the unworthy that shall not be saved, he will say to them, quote, Go ye into outer darkness, for which the Father hath prepared for Satan and his angels, end quote. Next, he writes, quote, Mankind by Adam fell under death and the deception of the serpent, that we are born sinners and that we are entirely flesh and no good thing dwells in us. There's that dualism, by the way. He asserts the weakness and disability of men either to understand or perform spiritual things and denies that man by the natural sharpness of his wit can attain to the knowledge of divine things or by any innate power in him save himself and procure eternal life, end quote. He continues and writes, quote, Jesus died for men of every kind, not all men, as Jacob served Laban for the cattle that were spotted and for various forms. So Christ served even to the cross for men of every kind of many and various shapes, procuring them by his blood and the mystery of the cross, end quote. He continues again, quote, do you think, O men, that we could ever have been able to have understood these things in the scriptures unless by the will of him that wills these things, we had received grace to understand them, end quote. Minutius Felix, writing about 170 CE, writes, quote, For what else is fate but what God says of every one of us, who, since he can foreknow matter, even determines the fates according to the merits and qualities of everyone, so that not our nativity, that is, as depending on the position of our stars, but our natural disposition is punished, end quote. Irenaeus in 180 writes, quote, God predetermining all things for the perfection of man and for the bringing about and manifestation of his dispositions, that goodness may be shown and righteousness perfected, and the church be conformed to the image of his son, and at length become perfect man, and by such things be made ripe to see God and enjoy him, end quote. And he continues, quote, God is not so poor and indignant as not to give to everybody its own soul as its proper form. Hence, having completed the number which he before determined with himself, 
All those who are written and ordained into life shall rise again, having their own bodies, souls, and spirits in which they pleased God. But those who are deserving of punishment shall go into it, having also their own souls and bodies in which they departed from the grace of God. End quote. Clement of Alexandria, not to be confused with Clement of Rome, Clement of Alexandria is in 190, writes, quote, according to the fitness which everyone has, he, that is God, distributes his benefits both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, and to them who are predestined from among them, and are in his own time called faithful and elect, end quote. He also comments on Jeremiah 1, 5, and 7 which is the passage that says, Do not say, I am a child, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, so forth. And, and, and Clement writes on this by saying, quote, This prophecy intimates unto us that those who before the foundation of the world are known by God unto faith, that is, are appointed by him to faith, are now babes because of the will of God lately fulfilled, as we are newborn unto vocation and salvation. End quote. Oregon in 2.30 writes, quote, Upon casting lots, the inheritance is distributed to the people of God, and the lot move, not by chance, but according to what is predestined by God, end quote. He continues writing, quote, But by the goodness and love of God of, to man, and through wondrous and divine grace, the knowledge of God comes to them who were before comprehended in the foreknowledge of God, or according to the version of Galenius, who were to be predestinated, end quote. Notice here, by the way, he's tying those who are known and elected unto salvation with those who God foreknew. Well, if this simply refers to his foreknowledge in the omniscient sense, well, God foreknows everybody. So does that mean everybody is saved? Of course not. Uh, continuing on, he writes, quote, All these things look this way, that the apostle may prove this, that if either Isaac or Jacob for their merits had been chosen to those things which they, being in the flesh, sought after, and by the work of the flesh had deserved to be justified, then the grace of their merit might belong to the posterity of flesh and blood and also, but now, since their election does not arise from their works, but from the purpose of God, from the will of him who calleth, uh, it, it continues, we are they upon whom the ends of the age have met, having ended their course. We have been predestined by God before the world was to arise in the extreme end of times, end quote. Novation in 250 writes, quote, For, says he, if he is said to be glorious in predestination, and predestination was before the foundation of the world, the order must be kept, and before him there will be a large number of men appointed to glory, end quote. Athanasius in 350. So now we're getting to about the time of Augustine, right? Quote, the apostle says he, in the first place, give thanks to God for his piety and signifies that faith in Christ was not a new thing all, but that this was from eternity prepared and promised by God. End quote. He continues, quote, upon casting lots, the inheritance is distributed to the people of God and the lot move not by chance, but according to what is predestined by God. End quote. And continues on, quote, How therefore should he can choose us before we were, unless, as he has said, we were before delineated in him? How verily before men were created should he predestinate us? End quote. And on and on and on. I could literally list hundreds of more passages dealing with predestination and determination and other doctrines that we now consider part of Augustinian and Reformed Calvinistic theology. Now, 
the provisionalist and others may want to nitpick some of these. But the point is that to claim that Augustine invented this doctrine whole cloth because of his prior life in Manichaeism is just flat out false. To say that no one before Augustine was exploring these ideas and, and uh, putting forth deterministic views is just nonsense. There's a very robust tradition in the early church fathers prior to him that was working with these very same ideas. And if this doctrine existed prior to this, it existed in the Eastern Church, in the Western Church, in the first, second, and third centuries prior to Augustine, then the parallel between a Gnostic concept of determinism, which is actually far more kind of materialistic fatalism rather than a divine determinism, and that of Augustinianism and later Calvinism is a trivial parallel at best with no real substantive impact or connection between the two. Now, as an aside, I find arguments from the early church to be problematic in another sense as well. They are often super over-selected. What I mean by this is that we like finding our view in the early church, but we also have no problem saying that the early church got things wrong, was undeveloped, was mired in countless problems dealing with Platonism and so forth. I'm curious if the provisionalist, almost exclusively Southern Baptists, are going to start baptizing their babies and believing in baptismal regeneration because those were almost the universal, uncontested views of the early church for several centuries. I highly doubt it. So why, even if they're right that libertarian freedom was the, which they're not right, but even if they were right, if it was the nearly universal view of the early church, so what? So was infant baptism and baptismal regeneration. That's just not how we use early church sources to make arguments. So what this does is the same kind of slippery wordplay and absurd parallelomania that Jesus mythicists like Richard Carrier play when they say that Jesus was a solar messiah just like Horus, Osiris, Mithra, etc. Jesus didn't have a natural birth from a human father, but neither did Osiris, Mithra, Zoroaster, and so on. Therefore, they all have virgin births and are the same kind of solar messiah myths. No. Sorry, Mr. Carrier. Sorry, Mr. Price. Sorry, Zeitgeist. Not even close. This equivocation flattens out concepts, trumps up extremely vague and superficial similarities, and simply in, and possibly intentionally and deceptively omits all the countless substantive, conceptual, historical, and biblical differences between the concepts in order to axe grind and ram through an absolutely absurd claim of parallel concepts. And this claim by provisionalists that Calvinists and Augustinians are semi-Gnostic does the same thing. So insofar as provisionalists <clears throat> continue to push through the Calvinism is semi-Gnosticism kind of rhetoric on top of the Calvin murdered Servetus nonsense, then they should not be surprised when serious-minded, well-read, and reasonable people consider them to be ridiculous, possibly dishonest, and about as reputable as Jesus mythicists are in historical Jesus studies. If you can play that fast and loose with historical facts and concepts simply because you have a theological axe to grind, then don't be surprised when no one takes you seriously. If you want a better reputation outside of the flower patch and the echo chamber of Soteriology 101, then the solution is extremely simple. Make better arguments. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please 
feel free to visit the blog, freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Follow me on Patreon, possibly become a supporter. Uh, Find us on Facebook at the Freed Thinker group page or email freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Join us again next time as we continue working through some of these interesting biblical, theological, and historical concepts and debates. Good night and God bless.